Hello friends and welcome back to another episode of the Well Then Podcast, a show where we dive into all things physical, mental, and emotional well-being so that you can live your most vibrant and love-filled life. And in today's episode, I have a wonderful guest to introduce you to. She is a dear friend of mine and we have had the pleasure of building an incredible friendship over the last year or so, as well as starting to collaborate on some exciting things coming up. In addition to that, she's also an incredible therapist, healer, and practitioner. Her name is Dr. Whitney Dictoro, and she is a licensed clinical psychologist who specializes in evidence-based treatments, including cognitive behavioral therapy, mindfulness, self-compassion, internal family systems, which is um, a tool that we talk a lot about in this episode. Her clinical specialties include working with women struggling with the transition into motherhood, development of self-compassion and mindfulness, low self-esteem, body image issues, and perfectionism, which are all topics we also spend a lot of time talking about in today's episode because that's actually one of the main things that Whitney and I really connected over and, and related on in our own stories and our life experience of, of what we've been through. And so she shares a lot about her story and her journey. I share pieces of mine. She shares things that have worked for her. And then we also talk a lot about somatic healing and emotional regulation and some of the tools that can really help get us back in our bodies in a really beautiful non-judgmental supportive way which is what her practice is all about and Whitney has also been trained by the psychedelic coalition for health in ketamine assisted psychotherapy which can be a beautiful tool to help clients break through stuck points or barriers to healing and that's something that we touch on a little bit in this episode but we're going to bring her back for a whole nother conversation on that one because that's a whole deep dive in and of itself so I'm really excited for you to hear from Whitney to tune into our conversation. I know you're going to get so much benefit from it. And without further ado, let's dive right in. All right. Hi, love. Welcome to the show. I'm so excited to have you on. I'm so excited to be here. I know the all, all the things that have been kind of like percolating in in our friendship since we met last year. Um, this has been one of the ones that I've been most excited to dive into because I feel like every time we talk, there's just another thing that I'm like, oh, we have that in common and we have that that we need to explore and, and um, unpack. So this is going to be I a feel really like our getting to know each other has just been one big podcast. Like, <laughs> no, like we should have just been recording all along. Yes. Yeah. hundred percent. Um, but you also have just so many areas of expertise and, and so much wisdom to share. So beyond the fact that, you know, we've gotten to be friends, I'm really excited for uh, the women in my audience to get to learn from you and hear from you. Cause I, I know that you've, you've lived through a lot personally, but also have so much professional, professional expertise. So there's a lot to cover. <laughs> well, I'm an open book. So just ask all the things and I always get, I always have, a reaction if anyone says I'm an expert in anything, because I never feel like I'm an expert in anything. But yeah. the truth is that I think we're all an expert in our own personal experiences. Exactly. And and then, you know, yes, I've been a psychologist for a while. So I've like <laughs> yeah. learned a few things. But interestingly, I feel way more expert in my own personal experiences. So yeah, because yeah. that's the thing that we live day to day and that we, like we've learned to try to master the own our own lessons that we've been through. So I completely relate to that. But that is actually one thing I was most curious to learn because I don't think I've ever asked you this is what inspired you to become a psychologist and like what what led to what led to you being on the mental health path? 
you know, what's funny is that when I look back, I'm like, well, of course I was meant to be a psychologist. Like it, it just, I was always, you know, I feel like every psychologist says this, but I was the friend who everyone came to and got advice from, and it was something I loved. Those are my favorite conversations. So I always wanted to go deep with people. I hated surface conversation. Um, but interestingly, I really resisted it. Um, I, I was, you know, I majored it in psychology in college and I was really interested in it, but my idea of what a psychologist did was working in a psych ward in a hospital. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know anything outside of that because I had never had therapy growing up. It wasn't something that was in my household. It wasn't even really anything my friends did. I grew up in the eighties and nineties and just wasn't a thing as much at that time. And so, um, what really led me to it was I actually started as a behavioral therapist. I got a job as a behavioral therapist working with kids who have autism. And so I was a one-on-one and I would go to kids' houses. I would go to school with them. And that was really, really intense, hard work. And, um, I kind of knew it was going to burn me out if I stayed in that lane, but I then started learning more. My boss at the time was a psychologist and um, was like, you should really think about going and getting your doctorate. And so that was kind of the next step, but it wasn't something that I always knew I wanted to do actually. And at that point, since therapy wasn't necessarily normalized for you growing up, had you been to therapy ever on your own? before pursuing your doctorate? No, I had not been in therapy until I went into grad school. And even then, you know, it was like recommended to us that we do therapy, but I I signed up and I I love my therapist. Um, She was very cognitive behavioral therapy, Um, but I only went like as needed. Like I didn't quite get this regular weekly thing was something that would lead me deeper and help me grow more. I just was like, Oh, you know, I'll just do it as needed. Um, yeah. And that, so really not until like, I want to say like five years ago, did I start my own every day and every week individual therapy? What was the the shift or the breakthrough for you where you realized that like, whether it was asking for support or learning to show up for yourself in new ways and kind of like ask those questions, what was the thing that had had that shift happen for you? You mean in terms of what made me go into get my own therapy regularly or, or I guess like what made you feel the, the most benefit, like when you were in terms of your own healing work, like what, what was the shift there? Yeah. Um, I think I had to get (laughs) to a level of crisis that was intense enough. I think I had to break a little bit. Um, and then really, truly being vulnerable in with another person, uh, the therapist. Um, you know, I think a lot of my personal growth has been around de-armoring mm. and allowing myself to feel and being seen in my feelings. Yeah. And my whole life had worked against that, even in, even in grad school right? Grad school is very much like, oh, dive deep into these subjects and learn all about the inner workings of a human. But by the way, you're not allowed to be a human because you got to get all this work done and be on high alert. And, um, and if you break down, sorry, your paper is still due tomorrow. Right. So 
it's really interesting when you when you get, you know, go to grad school, because it's really antithesis to all the things we teach our clients. Because well, um, you're spending so much time like intellectualizing all of it and learning and staying in the mind and no time in your body. <laughs> everything is intellectualized. And that's why I think it's taken until I'm in my forties now. And it's taken until now to where I'm like, oh, <laughs> oh, I get it. Like I, I get what this whole personal emotional growth thing is about. And it is so much more than all the techniques and intellectual things I learned in grad school. Yeah. I'm actually in, in a season right now where I'm kind of shifting from the kind of therapy I did and learned in grad school into a different kind of therapy that I wasn't really, I just didn't think was legitimate when I was in this very academic world. Yeah. And I know we can talk a lot more about like somatic therapy yeah, and, and right. that that realm that we share interest in. But I read something just a couple of days ago that is so reflective of what you're sharing right now that in our culture, we really sort of pedestalize and revere intellectual wisdom and the wisdom of the mind. And we completely disregard the wisdom of the body, the wisdom of spirit or soul, whatever you believe in. And in ways that that other cultures, it's the inverse, like that they revere the wisdom of the body above above the mind and see the mind as sort of secondary. But here in the States, especially in just kind of westernized oh culture, it's like the mind is, is the most important thing. And yeah, yeah, I mean, what has that been like for you starting to realize like, oh, maybe that's not the case. Wow, everything that I've been taught, like, what do I believe now? Yeah, um, it's so interesting because you can see, and and I, I feel like I'm talking, I'm talking, am I allowed to curse on this? Absolutely, um, yeah, anything goes. Like <laughs> um, about my grad school, I loved my grad school. It was incredible. It was such a great experience. I would never, I would not, I wouldn't do it differently. Yeah, and. Um, I think that you can, you can just see, like, looking back, I can just see how much I was indoctrinated into this world of academia where intellect was, and, and, and even like the, the kinds of therapy I learned, right? Like cognitive behavioral therapy, all the cognitive behavioral therapies, which again, love it. They have their place. Um, but we, it was, it was really indoctrinated into us that like all other kind of forms that weren't evidence-based just weren't as good or important. They were kind of like woo woo. Right. Um, and yet (laughs) keeping ourselves in intellect is, is a form of avoidance. It is a form of emotional avoidance and man, can you live your whole life like that? it's, it's reinforced in the society. And so, um, yeah, it's, it's been a lot of unlearning, mm-hmm. a lot of unlearning and it's, and it's something that's rehearsed over and over again is intellectual. I can talk about emotions till the cows come home. It's yeah. so easy for me. So I love it. It's like, I get off on it. Right. But having to sit there and feel an emotion that is deep inside of me and then see, have other people see it rather than me just talking about how I feel is, is the biggest growth edge for me of all time. It is like a racy thing for me. I so, so feel that because I, I was the same way for the longest time of like when I had 
thought about intellectualized and processed an emotion enough, I could talk about it. And I would think like, oh, I'm, I'm an open book. Like I can talk about yeah. these things from my past, no problem. But ask me about something that I'm currently feeling and haven't dealt with and have like shoved down and I would lose it. <laughs> Just so uncomfortable. And to your point earlier on, I think like most of us aren't actually taught how to feel, right? Like most, a lot of people aren't given the tools growing up of like, here's how to sit with a big emotion and to feel safe on the other side of it and to support yourself and self-soothe and co-regulate. Like, you know, parents are busy and humans are imperfect and we don't know how to teach tools that we weren't given. So yeah. And really what that would have taught, like if we were taught that, that teaches relationship to self. Mm. So when we're not taught, like actually you can meet yourself in in these emotions, right? Like uh, the way I was taught was just like avoid it and move on and no one was there to mirror it. Right. And so it was this like, almost like I just learned to be ashamed of all of it and hide it away and only feel it in private. And so I didn't even have a relationship to myself. And I think that that's what I've been learning is that emotional awareness, letting yourself feel things. It's almost you in relationship with you. It's like you and your body and the wisdom of your body trying to come through and our mind, which is overdeveloped, trying to shut it down. Mm. So do you feel like these last five years that you've been on this, this part of your journey that you've been getting to know yourself a lot better? I mean, in ways that I never, it's like, I'm a stranger to myself and I'm getting surprised every day. Yeah. Um, and it's a really beautiful journey to be on. And, you know, there's some times where I'm like, I wish it would have happened earlier. Um, but I think it needed to unfold exactly how it's unfolding now. Um, but yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's like getting to know a new friend and a new, but even more so it's like an, another attachment figure you're getting to know and you're becoming your own attachment figure. Yeah, absolutely. And becoming that safe space for yourself in, in maybe ways that you weren't taught how to do. Exactly. And tripping over yourself and go, going back into old habits. And then it's like- And it's- loving yourself through that, letting that be okay. Because I mean, myself and so many of the women I've worked with, it feels like you have to be on this linear journey, right? And that you have to keep going up. And if you slide back, then that's that's bad. It means you've failed or messed up in some way. And again, where the, the ego mind tries to jump in and- Yes, absolutely. make you wrong, but yeah, loving yourself through that those moments is so profound, profound and beautiful, and and I think yeah, I mean I could go on a whole thing about this. I'll let you, I'll let you lead the conversation. Well, one thing that I I really want to dive into because I know this is one of the first things that we kind of connected on, and I think it really ties into the piece you just shared about how intellectualizing and focusing so heavily on on our intellect and on our minds is this sort of form of avoidance, right? It has us not be in our bodies. It has us not feel the uncomfortable things, the painful things, the things that we're not ready to confront. Do you feel like in your own personal experience, but also in your clinical experience, that that has a really strong correlation with like the body image and eating issues you've experienced in your life? A hundred percent. Um, I was actually, I was doing a workout this morning. Um, and <laughs> we, we don't need to go down that rabbit hole. <laughs> yeah, we won't go down the music rabbit hole. That will probably come up, but, yeah. um, 
but I was doing a workout. It's the workout is called the class, which for anyone who's listening is an incredible, um, tool for exactly what we're talking about, right? Like feeling your feelings and like getting into your body and getting to know yourself. But I was, um, doing that this morning and, um, I just, (laughs) I just had this epiphany that, all the body stuff I've, cause I was thinking about this interview and I was like, all the body stuff I went through all the like restrictive eating and over-exercising and orthorexia and all the things, it was just armor, all mm. of this, all of our intellectualizing it's armor. It's all protection and they're just different forms of protection, right? So we all have different ways we protect. And for a lot of women, part of that is body image controlling our eating, controlling our, what we look like, um, for other people, it's drugs for other people. I mean, there's so many different ways to protect. Yeah. So I try to, you know, even thinking of it like that there, it kind of softens my heart around it. Cause it can be this thing that we hate about ourselves that we, you know, like it's embarrassing that, you know, I had this, you know, disordered eating, period of my life when that doesn't align with my values at all. I'm like a feminist. I, I love women. I love all different bodies, right? That's like the value. And yet there's this part of me that was born out of needing protection and it is the opposite of all my values. So I think it's really hard to talk about this stuff with compassion. Um, and yet if we can think of it this way, I personally, at least for me, it softens a lot of the harsh criticism around it. Yeah. And when you think about that version of you that decided you needed to armor, it was probably a pretty young version of you, right? And that for me always invites in so much compassion too, of like, oh, I was a child when I started to think and feel this way and make these decisions about my body. Like, of course, of course, I didn't know any better. Like, know any better. I was actively being told Mm. by magazines, by TV shows, especially when I was growing up. Um, I mean, it's so beautiful now. Um, I have a daughter and like watching her and the media she consumes, it's so different. It's so different. There's still problems, but I mean, I was getting us weekly magazines, you know, Uh, and when I was growing up, what was women or girls my age were told that the ideal body was this like they called it like the lollipop body like emaciated stick and a yeah. big basically yeah. and that's not how me or most women I know are built and um and I'm like of course of course I took that in I was like oh if I'm just do this stuff then then it will solve all the problems. Then I'll be really controlled and perfect. And then I'll feel safe. Right. Mm, Yeah. Unconsciously, not that I was consciously thinking that way, but yeah, but that's, I mean, it's so common. So many young girls and women and boys too experience that pattern because it feels like such a natural outlet. If other things in our life feel out of control or scary or overwhelming to deal with, we see this path of like, well, I can control my body. I'll control what I eat. I'll control how much I move. That feels safe, I guess. Well, this will get me to be liked. This will get people to not want to get rid of me. This will, you know, which is so sad as, you know, when I look back on it and yet to this day, sometimes that part of me will get stirred up and 
it is a dark and scary part. And Mm. um, even after going through active recovery, right, it's still something there. So it's like, yeah, I have so much compassion for the little one. And that little one often still lives in us. So it's not like you go through healing and it never affects you ever again. Um, That that's what I I worry sometimes that women think that they're going to go through healing and eating disorder or body image stuff, and they're going to be on the other side and then it's fine. And I don't find that anything works like that. Mm. Mental health. Yeah. None of it's linear. None of it's linear. None of of it's ever like gone forever Mm. in my experience. And if you're comfortable sharing this, when you think about your, your journey and like what led you to use those behavior behaviors to armor do you have you spent time with like what it was that you were armoring from or armoring against I guess oh absolutely yeah um you know for me I I grew up in a home um my, my parents divorced when I was really young so you know I was actively like going traveling to different parents houses since I was two mm-hmm. um and my mom dated some men that were not emotionally safe. My mom herself wasn't emotionally safe. She did her best. She was a single mom. She is still a great human and um, she's not in touch with her emotions. And I was a very emotional child. And so I really had very little mirroring. Um, You know, when I would freak out, she just shut down and got scared. Mm. emotions and just got cold and distant. And so I was alone a lot with these really scary, deep feelings. And so I wouldn't want to feel them. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think, I think it started with that, right. It started with armoring against just the feeling of the emotion, right. I couldn't, I wouldn't want to listen to sad songs. I didn't want to listen. I didn't want to watch sad movies. I would hide if I needed to cry, Um, my sister always says I would take my blankie if I had to cry and I'd put it over my head so that people would see me. Um, and, and I think, yeah, I think it started there. And then there were some pretty traumatic, um, boyfriends of my mom's that came in and that was huge. (laughs) Um, so yeah, I think, I think I was a really scared kid. Did you get called sensitive or too sensitive growing up? That's something that has been, I've heard it come up so much lately. And I majorly resonate with that of like those adults who don't know how to be with those big emotions or it scares them. There's this like, oh, you're just being too sensitive narrative that makes it so much worse. Yeah. My father would say that my mom, it was almost this like passive aggressive, like there was a lot of eye rolls when I would right? So like, I, I think what we don't realize is we can communicate energetically, right? Mm-hmm. And as children, especially, I mean, it happens with my kids all the time. Like yeah. I'll give a tiny little sigh. And one of my kids are like, I'm sorry that I'm making life hard for you. And oh. I'm like, oh crap, like that's not what I want to communicate, right? Yeah. Um, but yeah, I grew up with eye rolls and sighs and oh, oh, like from my mom and then my dad, I would like outrightly be told like, I was sensitive and I was a lot and, um, yeah, you just learn to, to cope by be saying, well, if this is making me not loved, then I'll just not be that. Yeah. <laughs> be easy. 
Right. Of course. Because as a little kid who we look to parents and ad- adults as authorities, we just assume they're right. Like, oh, I must I must be the one with something wrong. They're right. I'm too sensitive. Everybody else has normal size feelings and I just don't. So let me figure out a way to deal with that. And what we don't realize, and this is, this is like very primal, is that children have to be loved by their parents to survive. Yeah. Right? Like if you, we think about humans, our social animals. So that's why a human left alone will die mm-hmm. just from not having social interaction. And so what happens when we hear these things is our primal, you know, um, brain that has adapted over, you know, evolution to be exactly this way to keep us alive. It says, I will be whatever I need to be, to be in the tribe, Mm -hmm. to be accepted and loved so that I don't get kicked out of the tribe so that I can survive. Um, and so that's, that's why like kids are so adaptable. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit more, I guess, from like a psychological perspective, some of the patterns that that could lead to or how somebody might be able to identify, oh, that's why this is showing up in my life now? Yeah. I mean, any messages you got as a kid that told you you weren't okay as you are, you likely did something to change that so that your parents would be okay with you or who, or maybe not your parents, maybe whoever you were raised by. Um, and that doesn't even have to just be parents. It could be, this is what, you know, our peers, it's our, they're huge influences, right? So if your peers are teasing you about something, or if, if, even if you get tiny comments, our brain will pick that up and we will start to notice shifts in behavior so that we get accepted. Mm-hmm. Um, and and what that can then lead to is an abandonment of self, right? You lose touch with self. So you start to act in ways that will get you accepted, but you ha- you're, it's not like that old self just goes away, right? That's still there and it's just repressed. Yeah. And all the emotions that go along with that self get repressed over time and we lose touch with who we are. And then we have all these repressed emotions that come out in all these other ways, right? Like depression, anxiety, um, other mental illnesses, uh, physical illnesses. So there, I mean, there's a ton of research now on how repressed emotion, um, you know, I'm not, I I don't even want to say what the outcomes are because I'm sure there's also studies saying the opposite, but you know, like things like cancer or hypertension or other things like that. So, Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's wild. (laughs) It's, it's so wild to see how much of a connection there really is between mind and body and the things that didn't get processed in the past, how our body will find a way to like hold on to them, sort through them, like do what it needs to do so that we can continue to avoid the pain that we've been trying to avoid. I I feel like our bodies are actually so miraculous in that way. Like it's insane. Well, the the, the fact that we even see them as separate is yeah. it's just a made up paradigm that we've been taught in our society, right? Like it's all yeah. one thing anyway. Yeah. Um, but I just had a thought about even like in friendships, a lot of times when we, um, you know, we're teased us and we're told that we're a certain way, right. People like to tell us how we are. That's, mm, you know, yeah. parents do that. You're this, you're that. 
Yeah. Right? That's not self-identified descriptor. That's someone else taking their perception and putting it on us. Um, we will also internalize that. So I'm going to, this kind of gets into IFS, um, which mm-hmm. is internal family systems work and parts work. But what we will do is we'll take the feedback we get from people and we'll develop a part that then does that to us. So we'll stop even needing feedback from the outside because we'll develop a critic that does it to ourselves before anyone else can, because it's less painful. And we'll, the idea is that we'll shape up and be okay before anyone even sees the flaw, before anyone can give us the negative feedback, because we're already doing it. Yeah. Well, that- a lot of us live with that. Like that is the thing that we struggle with. Not, we don't, you know, at 40, I don't really have many people who are criticizing me anymore, but man, that part does. Yeah. And not even realizing that it is separate from you, that it was somebody else's voice until you ask the question, wait, whose voice is this? Who is this? Right. Yeah. Who does this remind me of? <laughs> Where did I learn that? Right. Yeah. Exactly. And we notice we're talking to ourselves all day anyway. So all of a sudden we'll just have this horrible feeling inside and we won't know why. Why do I feel so funky? Mm-hmm. And then it, 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 it's kind of a learned skill to be able to notice and become more aware of the internal self-talk. But once you do, you're like, wow, like I have just an insatiable inner critic that torments me all yeah. day and says the most horrible things that I don't even hear. But I feel it. Oh yeah. And I think most people don't even realize that they have the ability to to change that inner dialogue. Right. And right. that's you yeah. aware of it. How do you even change it? How do you even begin? How do you even know what's it, what it's saying? Right. That you that you are separate from it, that it it is just a voice that you learned somewhere, that you picked up somewhere, and that it's not it's not absolute truth. Yeah. And it's not you even. Yeah. Which is weird. <laughs> so weird. Yeah. And I mean, I know we were talking about, you know, body image earlier on. And I feel like when we're thinking about that conversation, there's so many different voices. There's those magazine covers that you read. There's the movies that we've watched. There's parents who might have unhealthy relationships with their own bodies and with food and friends at school. And there's so much unraveling to do of like all these things I've been telling myself all these years, if they're not true, like who's been saying this, whose voice is this in my head? Right. Yeah. I think, um, it's almost impossible. The messaging, especially about body stuff is just so widespread that, um, you know, a lot of people are like, what? Well, my, my mom never made it or my dad never made comments about my body. And I'm like, yeah, that you don't even need that. Yeah. Right? <laughs> just being a girl growing up in the time and not, not, I don't want to just say this affects women. It's men too. I have a, I have a ton of male clients of body image problems and full on eating disorders. And so, um, mm-hmm. you know, it, it affects all of us. Yeah. Is that yeah. one of the most common issues or patterns that people come to you to work through in your practice? Um, I wouldn't say it's the most common. It, it usually it's interesting. That's usually the last thing people actively come to me for, but it's, it's always present um, on some level. Yeah. But most people don't even know it's an issue because it's also touted as, oh, it's healthy. Like it's right. healthy to be on a diet, but I'm thinking, yeah, like it's, you know, like I have, I have to educate people sometimes because they don't even know that they're struggling with this stuff. Wow. Uh, so usually I, usually people come to me more for 
um, you know, trauma or depression or anxiety or relationship problems. Mm-hmm. And then it will kind of surface as, as you we peel back layers. Exactly. Yeah. Cause I mean, relationship with body is really like relationship with self. And that's, I feel mm-hmm. like now that I'm thinking about it, it's not often the first thing that people come in for they're, they're coming in for the, the, the things that seem like a priority. I think people often prioritize themselves last because they think self-love or self-care is selfish. <laughs> exactly. Or they're not even aware of their relationship to self. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What do you feel like maybe it's been in these past five years, but, or just in your adult life in general, what do you feel like has supported your own relationship with self and building and and kind of honing that more? Yeah. Um, it's, it's like not what I would have thought. (laughs) Um, so therapy for sure, but that's not even the biggest, I think in terms of like, if you look at it as like a proportions and a pie, like that's not the biggest pie piece. Mm -hmm. Um, for me, it has been, I want to say things like the class and dancing and, um, music. Right. And, um, this is why I tell people like, you don't even need to go to therapy. I mean, please go to therapy. (laughs) Um, for me, the biggest growth has not been when I'm talking. Mm, Right. Cause that's, you're in your head when you're talking, you're in your head, you're intellectualizing, right. You're not feeling into body. And it's really interesting because now that I've been going through my own journey in this, I really, I'll try to get clients to do more somatic or, um, body-based practices. The, and the resistance is so huge. Yeah. People are so uncomfortable to get into their bodies and do it in a therapeutic setting where someone's watching them. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I think, so for me, it's really been a very personal journey of, um, and, you know, it, it came about by therapy, but also listening to podcasts and reading books and talking to friends who were more kind of into this thing, into the body healing. And, um, and so, yeah, for me, like it was radical to listen to music and close my eyes and move my body just organically not dance to look a certain way, right? Not, not, and and to like let emotion move through as I was hearing music and moving my body instead of like choking it down. Yeah. And then those experiences in themselves, right? This is where like experiential learning happens. I was like, oh, if you had told me that with words in a therapeutic setting, I probably would have gotten it intellectually, but I wouldn't have understood what that meant until it's like riding a bike. I could tell you how to ride a bike, but you're not going to learn how, unless you sit on the bike and feel it wobble and, and like figure out how your weight balances out the bike. It's the exact same thing with processing emotion. Um, so a lot of times, like I do the class, yes, it's a workout, but I cry like (laughs) 40 minutes out of the 60 minutes I'm working out. I'm just bawling. Is it, what kind of workout class is it? Um, it's, it's so hard to explain. There's like traditional like stuff in it. Like you'll do squats and you'll, and you'll do like lunges and jump up and down and do things like that. But while you're doing it, the teachers are so incredibly talented. Like I'm like, you guys are therapists, but (laughs) it will cue you to say, and 
And where, where is your body right now? Like what is coming through? Do you, do you want to yell? Do you want to scream? And so you'll have this like group of humans, like full on, like we'll come up from a squat and we'll throw our our arms down and we'll go, ha, or like, we'll yell. And some people are crying and it's, I've never been in a space before where everyone is encouraged and actually asked to find the emotion inside while moving and to actually express it out loud and loudly. Right. Yeah. Like normally you only get that in like retreat settings, like containers that are specifically held for that purpose. And even know about a retreat like that, like Like inaccessible. (laughs) Right. Exactly. Like, I just don't think it is in, it's not woven into our, into this culture. I know there's many other cultures where dance. This is all old stuff, by the way, this is not new, not discovering anything new. This is ancient wisdom that, um, in our culture has just been devalued. And, um, we talk of it as like, it's woo woo. Well, it's not researched and it's not, it's like thousands of years old. I'm like, (laughs) actually, actually we're the ones who are very, very behind. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, all like like Eastern medicine practices and e- even yeah. like Eastern movement practices, like anything that is thousands of years old, I am going to put more stock in than like a 20, 50, 100 year old practice just because it's been studied. You are, but most people don't. But most people, yeah. Most people are like, sure. where, where are the double blind, you know, research studies on this? Yeah. yeah. And I, and like science is, is a wonderful thing. I'm so glad that we are researching these things, but it's like at the end of the day, we also just get to listen and trust the wisdom of our body and the fact that you're able to have a more profound emotional release in a one hour movement class than like maybe a year or years of therapy. Like that's so significant. We have to listen to that. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I think we were talking about relationship to self And in these classes, you know, like there will be like sweaty moments where you're dancing and yelling, but then, but then they take time to stop Mm. your heart and feel your great. Right. And what is coming up now? And there are moments where they'll like tell you to hold yourself. Right. And that's, these are involved in somatic practices too, where there are like holds you can do to regulate your nervous system. Mm -hmm. And, um, that idea of holding self promotes this idea of relationship to self. Oh, I am someone who can hold myself. I don't necessarily need another person to do that. I can reparent, I can refriend, I can um, actually develop this sweet, tender, loving, caring relationship with myself just through self-touch or allowing emotion to come through and talking to self, right? Like I see you, I feel you, I understand. Um, and so, yeah, the the class has been huge for me in that, but I also have my own practices that, that I I do as well that kind of help with that. Yeah. I I love that you shared that so much that like, yes, of course, therapy and things like it are important, but the things that have, have gotten you most in touch with yourself are the things that have dropped you most into your body and into your emotions. Absolutely. And, and again, like I love therapy, but if you think about it, (laughs) <laughs> what we're doing when we go to therapy, at least talk therapy, is we are we're we're talking about the problem over and over and over and over again. And what are the problems? And a lot of you know what we call disorders like depression or anxiety, they are <laughs> 
neural connections in our brains that are really, really well rehearsed. So they get stronger and stronger and stronger. And so, you know, I think therapy can be beautiful to discover new parts and everything, but we, I think we also have to be careful. It's like, how am I, am I using therapy to kind of just rehearse the same story over again without also getting into my body or also emoting or also maybe telling a new story and rehearsing a different kind of reality. Um, so yeah, I think, I, I think that, you know, I'm in a place right now where I'm, I think healthily questioning even, even therapy, even my own work and what's effective and what's not effective and what's helpful and what's not helpful, even if we're taught that it's helpful. Yeah. And I mean, I think there's so many different pieces to the puzzle too, right? Depending on, on what somebody's lived experience has been like and what they got and what they didn't get. And, you know, hearing you talk and just kind of reflecting on my, my own journey. I think when I first started therapy, it was really helpful to have the experience of somebody else just holding and witnessing space for what I thought and what I felt because I didn't have a lot of that. So it was like, you're just going to sit here and listen to me. That's weird. I'm not used to that. I'm supposed to talk to you about myself. Like, okay, strange, but I'll try it. Yeah. And then like, Concurrently to that, I had already been practicing yoga for for several years at that point and was able to deepen into my own unknowingly, my own somatic practices where I'd be in a yoga class and just be like bawling because the song is on and I'm moving something through my body and we had unlocked it in a therapy session. So now I'm really present to it and feeling it. And it's like all the pieces of, of that equation were needed for that to come to the surface so that I could sit with it and hold myself and be with it and just like cry in a yoga class and not care. <laughs> care I cared a little bit probably, but <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. did it anyways. I'm so glad that you brought that up because I think that that's, that's where I'm like, yes, it's therapy. And it's, mm-hmm. it's like, if therapy is the only thing, I think sometimes it can become an echo chamber. Mm-hmm. But then if you're doing therapy and you're thinking about it outside of therapy and in yoga classes or in dance classes or, or just letting yourself feel like, I feel like that's a revolution in itself, right? Like yeah. you get in your throat. Oh, wow. Maybe my body's wiser <laughs> than my brain. Maybe my body knows that something needs to come out. And that, which by the way, crying is a biological need and it changes the chemistry of our bodies. Yeah. So when you cry if, if scientists did come in and measure you before and after your body chemistry would be different mm-hmm. and it's, and they find that it actually distresses your body. So we do all this work to try to like mask around people, but we're, we're not listening to the wisdom of our bodies. Um, but yeah, so I think, I think it really therapy is so great because it gives you this framework and understanding of self that then you can use all these other tools to help support you in that journey. Yeah, absolutely. I love that you said that about crying too, because I think so many people, I'm sure you get this in your practice too. So many people come in feeling like, I don't like to cry. Crying makes me really uncomfortable. I don't cry in front of other people. It's like, okay, but what if you knew that crying was actually really productive and like helped you release stress hormones from your body and increase the the happy hormones? I can't remember which ones maybe you know, but I know that it increases something. Uh, um, I'm trying to remember, don't like, is it dopamine or, or serotonin? One of the, yeah. And, but um, 
Yeah. And actually people, a lot of my clients have a part of their fear of like not wanting to cry is they're like, I'm scared. I'll start and I'll never stop. Yes. Oh, can you talk more about that? And I will lost and I will drown in my own emotion. And what people don't realize is that when it, the reason it lasts a long time is when you don't fully allow it. Mm -hmm. So I always tell the story to my clients. I I tell clients personal stories because I think it illustrates things. Um, I always ask permission to make sure they're comfortable, but um, I had this one experience where I was just first experimenting with feeling my feelings and there was a huge emotion about to move through and my husband was in the room and I was like, you need to leave because I have a huge emotion about to come through. I'm going to lock the door. I'm going to feel it fully. And you just need to let me be. And he was like, uh-huh. Okay. So I turn around, I'm like, close your, close the door on your way out. Um, <laughs> I, it starts to come through and I, for the first time, I feel like ever, maybe for, probably when I was little, I did it, but at least in my adult life, I just let the cry come out in these huge, huge sobs. Mm -hmm. And it was like a bursting dam. And, um, I cried super, super hard for about 10 seconds and then it was done. Mm -hmm. And that was it. And I was, I was even surprised. I was like, wait, Wait, what, (laughs) wait, where is it? Like I was almost trying to make myself cry more, but it was really done because I had fully allowed it. And in its most like guttural, you know, sobbing form, not just like wiping away tears, but kind of like constricting your throat, constricting your chest while you're crying. Um, And then of course I looked up and my husband was like standing right there and put his hand on my back. And I was like, you didn't leave. And he's like, no, I want you to, I'm here for you. Yeah. Um, So it was also that edge of, and can be witnessed you in it which yeah. is super edgy so hard a lot of people yeah. um because yeah, so that's where all the that that if you let yourself fully go there without judgment without constriction you like make make a safe space for yourself of course and if you're in the middle of work you're not going to do this if you're in the middle of your day you're, you always want to make sure to create a safe space but if you do that usually you'll be surprised how fast it goes yeah and i i've been seeing this like fact float around the internet and I haven't really fact checked like if there's actually studies behind it, but some, somebody, people have been saying that like the life cycle of an emotion in the body is really only like 60 to 90 seconds. That if you really let yourself go there and feel it, that, that you're not going to be in the depths of it. Like it might still, there might still be layers to work through, but like that intensity of it is like a minute and you you might feel sad or worn out or you know, like that might last, but the, yeah, like, like you said, the intensity of it really goes away when you free it yeah. <laughs> from side. The one that I, uh, I don't know, at least in my own body, I don't know that that feels true for is grief because I feel like grief is an emotion that is like a world of its own, where if you've experienced profound loss or anything that that brings up the experience of grief, that that might last longer in some cases. Grief is, I, I used to say a monster, but I don't, I don't, it's not a monster because it's actually a pretty beautiful um, emotion, but it is, yeah, it is own, it's its own thing. It lives in a different world from other emotions and, and it, the people I've seen move through grief, it is the most beautiful evolution I think I've ever seen people go through. 
Yeah. It, it fundamentally changes a person. It does. And I've, the, the last few times you, you said, referred to it as beautiful, I feel these like chill, this chill sort of goosebumps washing over my body because it really does like the presence of grief. If you're in the presence of somebody who has allowed themselves to fully grieve and to be transformed by it, you can feel like what that has, how that has shaped them in such a, I, I don't even know that I can put words to it. It's profound, but it's like, yeah, it, it gives you access to this level of the human experience that is just, you can't really touch with any other emotion or anything else that you've lived through. Yeah. And it's, it's, um, it's interesting because that's the one thing that with, um, in therapy, like we don't ever try to go in and fix. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, there's um, no fixing it. There's no fixing it's, it's actively allowing a person to talk about whoever they're grieving and to feel all the feelings. And actually it's that idea of like the only way is through and for grief, we kind of are just holding space and witnessing. Yeah. It's it's the body knows what to do. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Your body knows what to do and just like trust, trusting that and trusting that in letting yourself go there that you, you can hold yourself through that and, and let other people hold you too, but like that you'll, you'll be okay on the other side of it. That's the hard thing. I think people think that they're just going to break and like never be put back together. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it can last a really, I mean, I don't know that grieving people ever really stop grieving. I think the intensity of it changes. Um, I forget where, I think a client actually, a grieving client actually told me this. They said, um, it's like, there's this metaphor of when you first start grieving, it's like this bouncy ball in a tiny, tiny box. So it's bouncing all over and hitting all parts of the box all the time. And so you're just constantly feeling triggered and in like drowning in the grief. And then over time, the box gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger And so the bouncy ball is still bouncing, but it slows down and it's not hitting as many points as fast. Mm -hmm. And as your box keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger, as you kind of go through it, you're, you still feel the feelings. It's just not as intense over time. Yeah. But I just love that metaphor so much. Yeah. That's such a beautiful analogy. Right. Yeah. And I feel like along with that, like your capacity to love more grows too. Yes. Oh my God. I love that. Yes. And, and I find, so, you know, through this whole journey of allowing emotion and feeling things, I, you know, that, that saying that we can only feel joy as much as we allow ourselves to feel pain. Mm -hmm. It rings so true for me because, you know, I just felt really numb to other things because I was really cutting off these other emotions that were bad or negative. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it, it, and people don't like to hear that part, but no, it's true. that's, that's the realization that changed my entire life. Like when I really let myself, when I was in a dark place and let myself like just be in it and really move through it rather than resisting it and fighting it. And mm-hmm. I started to realize that the more I did that, the more it created space to experience the joy and the love and the connection. I was like, Oh shit, this is <laughs> okay, well, I guess like life really is about contrast. So at least I know that on the other side of something heavy is always going to be something really beautiful. 
Absolutely. And we don't know when that's going to come. It's not nope. like math equation, obviously, but yeah, actually um, the teacher today in the class I was doing, I wrote it down because I was like, oh my God, this is um, so true. But um, she said, feel what you're already feeling as a practice of participating in your life. Mm. I really love that, right? Like this, yeah. almost this yoga of participating in life is yeah. like and feeling what you're already feeling. Yeah. Like choose where you're at. Except be there. <laughs> if we avoid what we're feeling, it's not like we're not feeling it. Right. Right. It's just like we're feeling it. But now on top of that, we're also having anxiety or depression because we're not letting it, we're bracing against it. We're not letting ourselves go there. Yeah. Making it worse. Exactly. Creating the resistance. Well, just let it move through. Yeah. But it, I don't want to un- undermine how hard that is and how challenging it can be. Yeah, it is. But then finding those tools that support you with it, whether it's movement, music, yes, supportive therapist, whatever it might be. And also I need to know if that class you took this morning was recorded because I need to take it. It's on demand. Okay. Also, I think they're, they give people like free 30 days. So I was going to tell you, I was like, you need to do this. I really do. For people who are listening, it was a class to the uh, the new Hosier's new album, and um, Megan and I are pretty we obsessed with do album. ten podcast episodes about <laughs> oh, it God. and uh, write a whole dissertation. Like I'm, I'm already basically doing it in my head. <laughs> so, yeah, I feel like as we've been talking to the other song that keeps coming to mind for me for you is the one, um, the Billie Eilish song, the What Was I Made For? Because I know that one was really moving for you and like thinking about the Barbie movie too and like learning to feel and and that's really what this is all about is like how can we be present to learning to, to feel those to just like you just said to be present to what's already there not to like learn to feel something we've never felt before but to just sit with what we've actually been feeling all along and haven't given ourselves permission to just be with like that is i think one of the most profound gifts of being human Absolutely. And you know, what's coming up for me when you said that is, um, I know we've been talking about this in relationship to self, but um, we really cannot go as deep with a partner. I know you do a lot of work with, um, you know, love life and people finding their person and um, we cannot be intimate with someone if we have not been intimate with ourselves. (sighs) And so, (laughs) um, you know, part of this work is also doing this with self so that you can be in relationship. And I don't even just mean romantic. I mean, in your friendships, right? Like the edges I have with myself are the, also the edges I have in friendships. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, you know, I think we have these parts, like speaking of parts, um, in IFS, Dick Schwartz's, um, model of the therapy he does it's internal family systems. And the idea is that we have this internal family and we have all these parts that develop over time because of wounding that happens and they develop to keep us safe. And, um, so, you know, these protectors that, we, we call them protectors. There are different kinds of parts that develop in his theory, but I, I, with my clients, I'm like, you can call it whatever the hell you want. It's, it's, it's a part that comes out that actually deeply loves you. Right. Mm-hmm. It's, 
it's a part that doesn't hate you. Even the part, the critic, it doesn't hate you. It's trying to it protect you so much. It's like, oh, I'm not going to let you be rejected by those girls at school. So you'll just dress how they dress, or you won't do that annoying thing that they made fun of you for. I'll, I'll just beat you up inside first so that you won't do that. Um, and and it's so interesting because those protectors who are who love us so much that they come up all the time are the same ones that will also come up in relationship. And that's why I think this work is so important because you, it, even if you think it only affects you, I promise you it's affecting your relationship with your partner, with your friends, with your kids, with your parents, with anyone who you're close to in your life. Yeah. Since we were talking about that song my brain like really works in song lyrics a lot of the times and because of the conversation yeah, yeah that we've been having recently I feel like I should share in that Billie Eilish song when she says um I'm sad again don't tell my boyfriend it's not what he's made for it just I feel like so often we assume that other people can't hold what it is that we're going through because maybe we were the kid who learned growing up that we were too sensitive or whatever the case yeah or too much but you don't really get to like the depth and the strength of what that connection could be unless you reveal those parts of yourself. Right. And so that's yeah. kind of a, yeah. And they might not be able to hold it. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, like you might have someone in your life who can't hold your emotion. And I think what I try to tell people of, of in terms of that whole thing is that it's not actually a reflection of something that's wrong with you. It's a reflection of their capacity. So this is what it's really just that person has not gone deep enough in themselves. Right. Like they weren't given the tools. Right. Or maybe they have a trauma that doesn't allow them to, maybe it's too triggering for them. Right. But it's not about you. Yeah. Right. It's just about them and that's okay. There will be people who can hold it. Yeah. And we get to continue to show up for ourselves to create space for for those people rather than shutting ourselves down to try to fit in with people who can't hold what we're really feeling. Yes. And and d- discernment, right? Mm-hmm. I, tell, I tell clients that um, I didn't even get, I forget who I got this from, but um, like, I think of everything as like relationships as like in rings that go out and out and out. So like you're in the center and then there are those people who are in the ring that's right outside of the center. Those are the people who you can ugly cry to, who mm. you can tell all your deepest insecurities and you know, you're not going to be judged or criticized or abandoned. Right. And then, you know, there's a ring out where you can like maybe talk about some hard stuff, but you're not going to go too emotional on them because you know, they might not have the capacity. And then there's the people on the out outside, right. Who they only kind of get the glossy, like, Oh, how's the weather? And yeah, kids are doing this and that, but you're not going to go deep because you know, they don't have the capacity. And um, I think that's really important. I think discernment is important for safety. Yeah. It's it's so important. And I also, (laughs) that makes me think of one friend I have who she really does not um, enjoy the experience or maybe have the capacity to be with those people on that, the outer ring where it's just kind of talking about kids and weather and surface level. Like it's really painful for her. So she's like, I just have the close relationships. I don't even do the outer ring people. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's hard for a lot of people to do that surface talk. And there are people who they only want to can only do that. Yeah. It's really painful to go deeper. Yeah. 
So yeah. life is just about finding finding your people who can be with whatever ring you're at. <laughs> the right match. <laughs> yeah, it's so important. And thank goodness we have all different kinds of people that like, yeah. right? It's like, it doesn't mean we need to change. It just means that those people are meant for other people who are like them. Yeah, I, I'm so glad you said that because I feel like my younger self and probably so many people, especially young people, feel like that pressure to to be liked by everybody, to fit in everywhere and whatever community, family, microcosm you grew up in, it can feel like you're, um, you're being liked by other people is kind of like we talked about earlier is sort of hinging on your your survival or your getting by or your success in the world. But then when you step back and realize there's 8 billion people on the planet and there's no way that we could be liked by everyone that we're not meant for everyone and that's okay that is where we get permission right to like be be who we really are or even explore and figure out who we really are yeah 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 that reminds me of um you and I do the same kind of meditation and um there's this idea that um in Vedic the Vedic worldview that that the universe, that things are all kind of happening in this beautiful orchestration, right? And mm-hmm. um, I think a lot of us get stuck in trying to, like, if a friend is moving away from us or has criticized us or doesn't like something, we're so desperate to, like, keep things exactly how they've always been. So we, like, try to change ourselves or we try to change the other person or we do all this stuff just to try to hold on to that connection. And I think it needs to be normalized more that people will move in and out of our life and that's okay. And we're not supposed to stay the same in our relationships and ourselves over the course of our lives. And when I learned that um, from our meditation teachers, it was such this like beautiful permission to just allow things to occur as they're occurring and trusting that maybe this rupture or this distancing that is happening in a friendship is okay. Like maybe it's a beautiful way of like the universe moving someone a little bit more out so other people can come in or so that I can grow in a certain way that I wasn't able to grow before. Yeah. Yeah. And trusting in what we can't see, trusting in what's being orchestrated and that there is something maybe greater that's supporting us that we're not, we don't have to figure out every little minute detail by ourselves. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And also acknowledging that like when things change, it's hard. (laughs) I hard and it it activates our attachment systems and we freak the fuck out. (laughs) So and that's I, normal and that's okay. It's so normal. And I feel it. I was even going to share it with you before we got on, on the podcast today when we were talking about like the changing weather up here in Seattle and, you know, it's, we're at the end of summer going into fall and you, you can start to feel the seasons change, right? Like you feel the weather getting a little bit different and it's not even like it's a night and day difference. It's just this, this feeling in the air that like things yeah. are changing and I, I love fall. I love autumn more than probably any other season. And I look forward to it. And still something happens in me when the seasons start to change, where I feel a little restless. I feel a little uncomfortable. I'm like, ah, oh, what's happening? I feel ungrounded. And to just accept that like change is hard for humans, even if the thing you're changing into is the thing that you want, the thing that you'd prefer, like it still can be uncomfortable. 
Yeah. And you look at like the animal world and animals will react to the tiniest little changes, sounds, different weather that moves through. And we forget that we're animals. And so we're like, logically, this does not make sense for me to be anxious <laughs> that fall, like summer is turning into fall, right? It's like the Spock part of our brain. Um, and it's like, no, you're actually an animal and your body is sensing a shit, a huge shift in the world. Right. Yeah. And that that's actually like, let allow yourself to move through whatever needs to move through no matter if it doesn't make sense to your intellect, right? We have to allow for the animalistic parts of ourselves to just know without being able to explain it. Yeah. And okay. Speaking of that, first of all, I knew that we were going to have like hours worth of things to talk about. So this is going to have to be a next time conversation, but I really do want to talk about, um, psychedelic assisted therapy, plant medicine and all the things Yeah, talking about that idea of like sort of trusting in, in, in that, um, the greater unfolding of things and, and sort of greater consciousness. I feel like plant medicine is, and, and psychedelic medicine is something that can greatly assist with that. Right. Absolutely. It will. And, and if it sometimes like the word assist is hard because sometimes medicine will throw you into something (laughs) (laughs) and like, you know, people always talk about bad trips or hard trips. And, um, usually those are the best ones because it really teaches us about ourselves and it kind of shows us how our body shows up for us in those moments. Um, so So we'll do, if you're open to it, like just a full episode on that, but can you briefly tease like what your um, relationship is with psychedelic assisted therapy and what, what you do in in the clinical regard there and also personally? Yeah. So um, I, I do ketamine assisted therapy. I was trained by Lauren Taus and Nick Bruce and, um, and basically in training, you have your own experience, um, of the different modalities of how ketamine can be delivered. So that's, um, intramuscular and oral is how I experienced it. Um, and basically psychedelic therapy can really help. We we talked today about like intellect versus body. And so psychedelics have this beautiful way of kind of like getting us into our bodies, especially for people who are really in their heads and really resistant to, um, you know, I like to say a lot of, who have a lot of protectors. Mm -hmm. We're talking about parts. Um, I see psychedelics as a way to help protectors take a step back and allow us to feel our feelings, feel our bodies to have um, maybe epiphanies that our protectors wouldn't allow before. Um, And so the way I work is um, if a client is interested, um, I work with a medical doctor and um, I I do intramuscular. I I don't myself administer it. A doctor will administer it, but um, we have the person on the floor, on a couch with, you know, blankets. And it's this really cozy nest experience where it's this opportunity for um, the part, the client to really be cared for in a way that, you know, as adults, we're just not cared for anymore as children. Maybe we like know what it feels like to be tucked in and to yeah. people for like a parent to sit by us as we're falling asleep. But, um, so, you know, we 
really work on helping the client identify their intentions for the journey, what they want to work on. It's not always going to match up with their journey, but having that structure is really important. Um, and then we have a playlist and I mask and they just go internal. So it's not talking. It is an hour of them and it's only an hour um, of them experiencing their internal world without their intellectual brain getting in the way. And a lot of times it can help people kind of get over barriers that to healing that they didn't have access to before. Yeah, it's it can be such potent stuff. And I haven't personally experienced ketamine assisted therapy yet, but just have heard such wonderful things. And I actually had Lauren on the podcast years ago to talk about it, but it's been so long. So I'm really excited to do a conversation with you about that because I feel like it's just a lot more in the forefront in, in the sort of collective conversation right now. And people are getting curious about how, how it could benefit them. So I absolutely will love to talk all about it. Okay. And so for people who, we didn't mention this before, but you're LA based for people who are in LA who might be interested in learning more about you. Are you even taking on new patients? How can people get in touch with you or learn about your practice? Yeah. So I, I'm LA based, but, um, I do pretty much exclusively virtual therapy. So even if you're in San Francisco or just as long as you're in California, um, I, you, we could work together. Um, my website, this is, you might have to link it because we'll link name, everything in the show. Notes. My, my yeah. It's like, no, you're not memorable. <laughs> um, but you can go to my website and there's an area where you can email me there. Um, and, um, I'll have maybe Megan can put a link to, to that. Um, and, and I can yeah, link your on, Instagram and all that. Yeah. As stuff. long as you reach out and just say you're interested, I will likely have space. Yeah. Amazing. I definitely recommend for everybody listening to, to stay in touch with Whitney and what she's up to. Cause you just do such beautiful work and, and oh, it would be you. so special to get to work with you in person or not in person, but virtually. So anybody yeah, who gets when, I, when I might do a, a retreat. So if people wanted, we're interested. Definitely. In yeah. We that's been figured it out yet, but we're going to, it's, it's going to happen 1000%. Just stay tuned on dates and details and, and all that good stuff. I'm so excited to get to do that with you. Oh, it's gonna special. Yeah. Um, last question that I love to ask everybody who comes on the show. I feel like you <laughs> probably answered this earlier on, but maybe you have an additional answer now. What is one um, self-care or wellness practice that you are either loving right now or is just like a staple in your life, like cannot live without? Mm. It might be the class. It might be <laughs> movement and music, but yeah, yeah it's, it's actually movement. I would say, um, so in addition to like workout. Um, I, as part of my healing, I get, um, earphones like you're wearing. So like, I'll get my Bluetooth noise canceling headphones and I'll close my door and I will dance to mm. music and I'm not talking pretty dance. I'm talking mm. like, I don't even know where these movements come from. Um, but I really just try to let go and I feel all sorts of things while I'm doing it. And that's really my favorite thing right now. Um, I go to ecstatic dance too. So in LA, at least I actually think it's all across the country, but ecstatic dance, I think it's in major cities. Um, it's kind of like a silent disco and you're just basically dancing with people, but in your own little world. Um, and it is so beautiful because everyone is dancing full out. No one gives a crap what anyone looks like. Everyone's just feeling their feelings and dancing. And it's so 
incredible. So yeah, I would say dance and music are the number one right now. I love that so much. Such a good way to get in your body and just let stuff go, move it through you. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I'm so excited to continue the conversation and all the things. And thank you for sharing your wisdom with everyone here. Well, thank you. Your questions were just so beautiful and I just feel like it just flowed so well. So thank you for you make it easy. And, um, for anybody listening, if you know anybody who needs to dive deeper into this relationship with self or trauma, healing, body image, any of these conversations that pieces of Whitney's story might have resonated with, I always encourage you to share it forward, pay it forward, share the love, share the episode with them. And as always, until next time, have a happy, healthy and love filled day.